Hi there and welcome to another episode of Leading. How do bosses learn to lead? How do they take big decisions and what advice do they offer to others? In this podcast, I talk to leaders from a wide range of organizations about their take on fronting vital causes, famous brand names and multi-million pound enterprises. This time, animal welfare and the great outdoors. Claire Horton is Chief Executive of Battersea Dogs and Cats Home, the London institution that last year helped over 5,000 dogs and cats across three centres. It also campaigned successfully for the introduction of Lucy's Law, which has made it illegal for anyone other than a breeder to sell puppies or kittens commercially. Horton began her career at the NSPCC. She's also been Chief Executive of the University of Warwick Students' Union and Chief Operating Officer at the Variety Club of Great Britain before taking the helm at Battersea in 2010. She's joined by James Mason. He's Chief Executive of Welcome to Yorkshire. The tourism body is dedicated to driving visitors back to the region post-pandemic to boost an industry that is worth £9 billion a year in better times. Welcome to Yorkshire's greatest hits include attracting the Tour de France to the region in 2014, but Mason must rebuild trust among the councils and businesses that fund the organisation after his predecessor quit following concerns over spending and the treatment of staff. Before tourism, Mason spent 12 years as a BBC broadcast journalist before becoming Chief Operating Officer at Bradford City Football Club. It's a great conversation. The duo tell me about dealing with this year's financial pressures and how policing and pie-tasting featured earlier in their careers. I started off by asking Claire whether the easing of the first lockdown had seen a surge in pets given up by their owners. We're still waiting to see what we think is going to be a surge come the end of proper lockdown, if you like, when all the furlough and job um, job retention schemes finish. Um, and we'll see whether or not the uh, the expected surge of animals being relinquished or, or let go actually happens. I'm sort of on the fence on this one a little bit because I think what we've seen over lockdown and certainly unprecedented in certainly our history is the huge demand that has happened over the last nine months for dogs and cats in particular as pets um, to, to, to join families and to join people in their homes. And actually those relationships seem to be working out really well. And so far we've not had lots of animals relinquished. We've not seen people giving them up. And what we do know from research is that they've been a lifeline to people through this coronavirus crisis with you know giving people a reason to get up in the morning and keeping them fit and keeping them you know giving them companionship so I'm hoping that actually we don't see a surge and I'm hoping that people do hang on to their animals. Because how do you prepare as being the boss now for 10 years? How far ahead can you forecast? I think you're looking after about 5,000 dogs and cats come your way every year. But I guess you just don't know what the future looks like, really. We don't. And we uh, we built our history on, on the fact that we never turn an animal away. So, of course, we get sort of seven, eight new cases every single day come into our organisation. We've got three centres and we've got a lot of capacity to take animals in. And thankfully, although our centre are closed, we still are able to home animals. So we're able to, to get almost as many out as we've got coming in, which is, of course, really helpful because it keeps that churn and keeps those doors open for animals to come in. In terms 
terms of planning ahead, we work very carefully to think about what sorts of staff numbers we need, what sorts of kennel and cattery space we need, the sorts of resources we're going to require. And we manage very well, actually. We work with partners all around the country and, and in fact, across the UK to either take overflow animals from them, or if we've got something a little bit tricky that we'll probably struggle to find a home for, then we'll send them out to specially street homers. So we keep our, our doors open and we keep those animals moving through as much as we can. James, to come to you, welcome to Yorkshire. How do you do horizon planning at the moment? Uh, Because it's a tough, tough year for the tourism industry. Have you given up on 2020? Is it all about planning for when the tourists can come back? Uh, No, we haven't given up on anything here at Welcome to Yorkshire, simply because A, it's not in our nature, but B, uh, to answer your question seriously, the tourism industry is a huge part of our economy. £9 billion, to put a figure on it, in recent years. And as you mentioned, the peak season would be the summer that's just gone, starting back in March and April. But actually, the winter months, and particularly half-term now and Christmas Uh, would be an opportunity for businesses to gather significant income before the shoulder months or the quieter months that we would call them. What I would say in terms of horizon scanning is what we're able to do on the back of having one lockdown is predict the future, i.e. what can be done irrespective of a further lockdown or any part of our region going into tier three, which would be the most severe uh, restrictions at the moment. And these are outdoor pursuits. These are walking. These are activities that can be done maybe just with your families. So whilst it's very, very difficult, we don't have the opportunity to almost down tools. Of course, yes, we're looking ahead to next year. Uh, We have to, but at the same time, Uh, We've got many members that own micro businesses that need actually our support now. So it's it's a continual process. You talk about those members and you're funded by the councils in the region and also the the business, I think, of membership. And what have we lost so far? Are there businesses that have gone, you think, not to come back? Or actually, is there quite a resilience and resolve that people can hunker down and, and make the best when 2021 dawns and hopefully is brighter? I think I think there's a mixture here. Feast and famine, unfortunately. So, some parts of the industry have done particularly well. Um, I hate to admit it, but I think I've supported most brewers uh, in, in Yorkshire over the last six months. But we've seen you know, a shift in, in that popular phrase of pivot. Uh, we've seen many businesses move towards online sales, virtual conferencing, carrying on their business, but not as usual, but done it in a different way. And I, and I think that's really important for the future because they've shown some real dexterity and agility. But there are, of course, some industries, particularly visitor attractions, museums, theatres, that are actual tangible attractions that people need to be there where, where you need an audience. Sadly, we have lost some. Yeah, inevitable, unfortunately. Some small businesses, some even larger businesses haven't been able to trade since back in March. If you think of some of our theatres, uh, and in particular, some great news recently for the Sheffield theatres of of the Crucible, etc., that haven't been able to open their doors, that probably were looking at potential extinction earlier on in the summer, will now get through this because of government support. And I think the key word that you mentioned there um, in the question was survival. I think survival is the new KPI for most. It's just getting through this period to when they can trade at something like uh, normal capacity. And what about your pivot, James? Because you came in in January this year. There was a job to be done, which was really revived this organisation. I'll come on to that. But you pretty well found yourself within a couple of months doing an altogether different job. How did you deal with that? 
I suppose a little bit of backstory for, for any listeners. Welcome to Yorkshire is principally the marketing agency for Yorkshire. Our aim is to attract people from all across the world, uh, across the country and across the region to Yorkshire to spend their their downtime, their family time, their, their leisure time. And the role back in January was exactly that, to continue building Yorkshire as a global brand, as a place to visit. And I was, <laughs> I suppose, delighted to get that role uh, as a proud Yorkshireman. What wasn't in the job description was a global pandemic that in three months of starting, I was asking people not to come to Yorkshire. So the clues in the title, welcome to Yorkshire, we're welcoming people in. But, you know, within two or three months, I was asking people not to come to the Yorkshire Dale, not to come to the coastline and not to come to our uh, vibrant cities like Leeds, Sheffield, Hull, uh, York, Bradford, etc. So the, the, the role changed overnight to some extent, still um, extolling the virtues of Yorkshire as a county, but actually a more lobbying role, working on behalf of our businesses and our members to amplify their messages to both central government, DCMS, uh, local government, as to how important these businesses were on, on, a, on a micro level and a macro level, because tourism takes care of itself to some extent. We all know what happens in the summer months and whether you choose to fly abroad or whether you stay in the UK, a lot of these businesses do prop up um, lots of supply chains. But when they all go on stop, I mentioned brewers at the start of this, but the food suppliers, the drink suppliers, the service suppliers all rely on a buoyant trade. So how we've pivoted and how my job role has changed has been from celebrating the county and its virtues and assets to actually protecting and demonstrating that some of these businesses within it are vital and we can't take them for granted. Claire, you've had a little longer to prepare for the pandemic if you look at it like that, but of course nothing prepares you for a, for a pandemic. You've been CEO for, for 10 years. What have you had to do differently? Looking at um, what's been written about you, it seems like the really big change has been how you go out and, and fundraise and, and bring in the money that you need to run the world's most famous animal refuge. Well, certainly, uh, it's been 10 years since I started there, and uh, we were pretty low on our income, although everyone had heard of us, and, and we were, we, you know, sort of known and loved by millions, and something of a national treasure. We actually didn't have very much money. We had an iconic and very much a flagship site that was pretty decrepit and falling to pieces. That all had to be changed. So we've had to invest a lot of time and energy and money over the last 10 years in fundraising. So we, we built a new fundraising strategy. We actually went and did one of the most important things that you want to do when you, you are a charity, and that's ask people for money, which we'd never really done before. And what we found was we're so well known and so well loved that when we asked people actually gave we were very fortunate of course to attract Paul O'Grady and and ITV to to work with us and of course they've been with us now 10 years and that's been a really helpful program because it's taken people inside the doors uh, behind our gates if you like looking what what happens in Battersea on a day-to-day basis you know sort of managing all of the the public messaging looking at how we could raise our profile making sure we were getting the brand out there the name of Battersea, making sure that we were showing things that were relevant to people and actually doing all of those things at the same time with multiple teams was very hard. It was a big change for Battersea, but you know, it was a, it was a group of people that really embraced that change and really enjoyed, I think, sort of going forward and trying new things. And ultimately, of course, we've been very successful in doing that. We're now sort of four times the size in terms of income and, and certainly we've got several hundred thousand people who very kindly donate on a monthly basis so our finances are in an, an awfully better place
place than they were. And that's allowed us to upgrade all of our facilities, all of the, the big hospital, of course, that we use. And we launched an international academy. So looking to diversify as well to make sure that we are reaching not just those animals that come through our doors, but those that we might never see. And what did the pandemic specifically uh, mean then? Because it's great if the, the monthly money is coming in. And I note, you know, 44 million pounds of income in the last year in your account. Almost all of that is coming from supporters and legacy and so on. And you're working quite hard to bring that in. 35p in a pound you're putting out there to bring in the, the next donations, if you like. But does that hold up then in a year like this? Or do you start to worry and think, well, we have to cut our cloth or reach out in different ways? Yeah, we, we do have to cut our cloth. We have to be very careful, but we always are. And we're a charity, so we we uh, we are very careful how we spend the money and we always look for value for money when we're looking at new activities. But certainly, we, we, of course, had to stop all of our fundraising events. Anything that we did that raised money for us almost overnight stopped. And, and that's been quite hard. You know, we are going to lose two or three million pounds of income this year. Thankfully, we've had some additional legacies that we weren't expecting that have come in that will keep up going through this year and that's that's great we've had to think about the way that we operate we had a about 200 people on furlough at one point we're down to about 50 people now and I can't bring those 50 people back just yet because I don't have a center in London that's full of animals yet so uh, and of course I've got to look at people's safety and make sure I'm not bringing them into work in close confinement when I, I just don't need to do that so you know we're sort of hobbling along we're doing okay and thankfully everyone remembers remains very positive. Uh, We didn't benefit from any of the government funding. None of the charity monies that the government put into the 750 million pot have come to the sector. So I I do a lot of work across the whole animal sector. Yeah. And it's a bit of a surprise to most people because I think people think that when, you know, just because you're a charity, you'll therefore fall into the pot that everybody else does. And and animal welfare tends to be a bit of a poor relation, which is very disappointing. I I worked with and I, I work continually across the sector with rescues around the British Army and actually put a bid to the Treasury twice now, actually, on behalf of the sector, asking for some support. And uh, we've just not we've just not seen it. It's, I, you know, there just isn't that money. Well, there just isn't that money there for animals. So we keep on plodding along. We actually set up, we talk to our corporate supporters and our and the grants and the foundations that look after charities. And we managed to put together a pot that was around £500,000. And we've been managing that uh, through Battersea uh, on behalf of the sector. So we've been running uh, an emergency crisis relief fund that has helped large number of rescues all around the country through this crisis and saved an awful lot of them from collapse. Interesting, interesting that the, you know, the Prime Minister there is a, an affirmed dog lover and yet you know you are not getting the support that you might expect, Claire. James, I must turn to you and ask about your finances because I suppose that the question of your finances predates the pandemic. The, you know, to fill in the gaps, your predecessor left. There were concerns about spending. There were some concerns about um, treatment of staff and so on. I know there've been investigations to to look at that, but really feels like you are absolutely at the moment. You're trying to convince your backers that you are the body that should be promoting Yorkshire, both nationally and internationally. So, where are you with that conversation? Yes, we're quite a unique organisation in that we are both publicly and privately funded, uh, yet we're a private limited company, uh, a company limited by guarantee, but yet our members aren't shareholders, we don't pay dividends, 
my salary and, and other senior members' salaries are, are agreed by an audit committee. So ordinarily, in a, in a good year, we would receive subscriptions by local authorities that range in valuation based on size of population, of demographic, of, I suppose, fixed assets, uh, and, and I mean tourist assets in that respect in the region. So, for example, North Yorkshire has lots to offer tourists, whereas other parts of the region would do it in a different way. And I suppose in that respect, we receive subscriptions, but then also um, when we're able to put events on, such as the Tour de Yorkshire, which was the legacy cycling event following the Tour de France, whether it's a number of other festivals or events across the year, we're able to generate commercial income. And then we have a number of private sector members, both as corporate partners, but then thousands, and I mean thousands of smaller members that would pay a membership fee. So we're a membership organisation. And overnight, in I think it was the 23rd, 24th of March this year, when lockdown came into came into force, a lot of our members all of a sudden had their ability to earn taken away from them. So we decided to put a, a three-month price freeze or income freeze on membership, but also local authorities that would fund us all of a sudden had a different agenda in that public health, uh, safety, and focusing on, I suppose, dealing with a virus that was unexpected came to the forefront. Yeah. In addition, their own income streams were obliterated. You know, business rate payers weren't able to pay. So overnight, our funding was, you know, almost extinct and vulnerable. So we've spent the last six months trying to demonstrate value and I suppose a period of explanation and as I said earlier amplifying how important the tourism industry is to the wider economy and it's not that anyone doesn't understand that it's their ability to support us so questions from council leaders and cabinets would be you know shouldn't we be proportioning our money to you know supporting furlough or supporting public health and making sure that people can get back to work quicker whereas tourism perhaps wasn't on everyone's agenda you know perhaps as I mentioned that look spend was seen as something that could go by the wayside. Meanwhile, our business members were focusing on paying their own individual bills that were essential to them, not necessarily their marketing expenditure, which is ultimately what their membership fee would go towards. So for the last six months, we've been fighting tooth and nail to put our own recovery package together, which on behalf of the industry is what we've been doing for them in terms of trying to get a recovery package for them when we need our own. So in that respect, our finances have been, yeah, very delicate. And the months of July, August, September, not dissimilar to Claire, we had to cut our cloth accordingly. But at times we were really struggling to pay our own bills. Thankfully, I'm pleased to say as of today, we're almost over the biggest hurdle of our funding gap. But now the hard work starts to repay that faith. Because the challenge is, well, I mean, you know, you are you are both still here, which is for for any organisation going into March is a, is a great success. I mean, specifically with Welcome to Yorkshire, I mean, you said it earlier on that there's always a feeling that tourism will take care of itself, and I suppose part of your job is is to keep banging the doors down and saying, well, actually, it doesn't. You have to do this and that because it's a very very competitive market. Someone who might come to Yorkshire might also go to Dorset. They might also go to Paris. But I guess it's um, because of the legacy you inherited, you always knew that you'd have to do a um, a real job on proving the viability and the importance of, of the organisation. Do you think the pandemic's made that harder, easier, or pretty much the same? Um, harder and easier in equal <laughs> measures. Uh, you mentioned Claire's had, had 10 years, is it, in, in position, Claire? So in that respect, you know, I, I'm nine months in. And the first year, I suppose, of any chief executive is, 
a period of learning, understanding, you know, what's under the bonnet. So I wanted to look at the organization, see what worked well, what wasn't working well. Was there a fat trim? Was there any areas that we were underperforming in that we could make some quick wins? And I suppose very quickly, I was thrust into the spotlight, both media spotlight and trying to save an organization. Whereas back in January, it was about rebuilding an organization. So that changed. And, and that was a real challenge, James. So in that respect, that's been the hard bit, you know, fighting tooth and nail for uh, to demonstrate value and v- validity, if that makes sense. That's been the real hard bit. And that's been a lot of looking in the rearview mirror, you know, begging Peter to pay Paul, etc. A lot of the nuts and bolts of work that a chief exec would be able to do in year two or year three or year four. I've had to do it in the first six months. Everything's sped up, yeah. Yeah, but the flip side of that, James, is that, you know, thrown in at the deep end, you know, that challenge enables you to acutely, I suppose, see where the focus needs to be. And actually, it does um, illuminate some areas that you probably may not have been aware of until further down the line. So, what we've had to do and what we've done is not trim the fat, but cut cut to the bone almost uh, to some extent. You know, there was some cutting to the flesh that needed to be done, but we've had to strip back any unnecessary costs. Any staff member, unfortunately, that we didn't deem essential had to go through a period of redundancy. But I think we're leaner for that and we're in a better position now going forward to have a real grip on our finances, demonstrate real, real value to the industry. So in that respect, that's been an easier job, something that might have taken two or three years to do. And I mean, serious restructure, saving a million pound from our bottom line, reshaping the organisation to something that's now digitally led, which would have been a big piece of work. It's almost been forced upon us to make those decisions. I'm not going to say never waste a good crisis, but we've had to make some decisions easier than we would have been able to do under normal circumstances, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Claire, the the other part of your role, I mean, I looked at it and it feels like Battersea very much is dealing with today's problem, if you like, which is the animals that are brought in every day, the numbers that you talked about. Then I think there's this quite interesting lobbying part, if you like. I I want you to talk about that a little bit. You had a, a real success, your involvement with Lucy's Law earlier on this year, which outlaws the online trading of puppies and kittens. Do correct me if I'm wrong. And that seems to have been quite a something that you've really grown up in your decade, the voice of Battersea. Yeah, I, I agree. We have. I think Battersea is very well respected and, and understood now as a, as an organisation that's really influential in changing legislation and uh, and working with sort of politicians and opinion formers. And Lucy's Law was a sector-wide campaign led by a group of people who were very committed to making sure that we tried to tackle the online sale of puppies and particularly more so the bad breeding of puppies and, and, and selling unhealthy puppies through third parties so it's about banning that sort of middleman if you like and trying to make breeders much more accountable so that when the public were buying a puppy they know that they're going uh, you know to the breeder that actually bred it but Battersea has been uh, we in fact we had a, a success on Friday when finally what started as a Battersea campaign back in 2017 which was campaigning for an increase in sentences prison sentences for animal cruelty uh, was finally 
passed through its second reading in the House, which has had sort of 18 months, almost two years worth of delays, thanks to Brexit and now COVID and then the general election, you know, all of those things sort of stopped that. And that's obviously about changing the sentence here in, in England from six months for the, you know, the worst, the worst animal cruelty in this country is punishable by a maximum of six months in prison. And for those people that plead guilty, you know, they get 20% knocked off that sentence. So it's barely anything at all. Well, that's now is likely to go up to five years. And that takes us way into sort of one of the leading countries in the world then that actually recognises things like that. You know, we've been involved in bringing compulsory microchipping for dogs, which was very much about ensuring that dogs were able to get reunited with their owners and, you know, should they get lost and, and again, making people accountable for the care of their own animals. So I think we're respected by politicians, by government. We do a lot of briefings with MPs and ministers. I think we're taken very seriously. We do work very much as a collective across the sector with colleagues in other organisations because there's always more power, isn't there, if, if there's a number of you coming together. And we get great support from the public who are really interested in this stuff. You know, we're not the sort of shouty, ranty, placard-waving um, brigade that sort of campaign in a, in a sense that people don't necessarily want to, want to engage with. We're very very much, uh, uh, you know, influencing and talking sense and actually being quite persuasive in what we're telling people. And, and we demonstrate the benefits all the time. So, no, we've been very, very pleased with what we've been able to achieve. And is that your style of leadership, do you think? I mean, very persuasive and not taking no for an answer. <laughs> Resistance is futile, James. <laughs> um, I, I think I am a... I like to empower people. I do like to influence positive thinking. I really do like people to to have a bit of confidence in themselves. I think I'm quite a buoyant leader in the sense that, you know, I, I'm very, very, very rarely downbeat. You know, I can get as serious as the next person. But actually, I do have a very positive approach to what I think is possible and, and what I think we should be doing. And, and I really do encourage people to strive and stretch themselves. So that translates, I think, into a a really positive culture. I do very much believe in being a values-led organisation. I'm, I'm a values-led person and, and that therefore I think translates into how I work with people. And actually, if you can live and breathe your values as an organisation, I think it creates a really strong culture and attracts all sorts of people, really diverse people who love doing what they do. And what about you, James, uh, your style? You know, when you're making the cuts that you've just talked about, I think it's quite something to keep confidence levels up and keep energy up, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think that's the challenge for any leader right now to keep going. And, and I think that phrase that Winston Churchill came up with, which was, if you're going through hell, keep going. And that's something that I've said a few times through our darkest days, because there's been afternoons where we've brought all the staff together to say, you might want to start looking for other opportunities. You know, the dream or the journey here might be coming to an abrupt end for the reasons that I mentioned earlier in this conversation, because, you know, you have to look yourself in the mirror and go, can we get through this? Especially when public money is involved, you know, is it the right thing to do to continue? So in that respect, uh, morale, momentum is really key. And, and often you have those um, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed meetings, but inside you're really fearful for the for the next chapter of the business. But you've got people's livelihoods, you've got your own livelihood, and you've also got your hopes and ambitions and aspirations. As I mentioned, I came into this as a proud Yorkshireman at 42. I think I was 41, actually. I feel like 62 at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> and, and it was a real opportunity for me. So to have a lot of that sort of the rug pulled from under me was a real test of my character. 
And I think your leadership style has to change through learnings. And although my character, my style doesn't change, my, I suppose, approach to new situations has to. I've got a number of mentors that I lean on that have helped me through the period that has been the last six months because I've faced challenges that I haven't faced before. So in that respect, not dissimilar to Claire, I like to empower my staff. I don't think uh, I'm the only one with the answers. I, I, I'm the one that had to come up with the strategy and, and build a, a new vision for Welcome to Yorkshire. But at the same time, you know, I don't own all the answers. We're a big county. We're a, we're, we're, we're a very diverse population. So in that respect, I have to lean on uh, expertise outside of the building as well as internally. And in that respect, again, to echo what Claire said, you know, I'm all about bringing people on the journey with me. I think any successful leader or unsuccessful leader has either mastered that or they haven't. You know, you've got to get buy-in from the top and the bottom. We have a board of directors, not dissimilar to Claire, so I have to manage up as well as manage down. But also courage of your own conviction. You know, I am belligerent. That's a Yorkshire trait, which I think, again, Claire will understand. <laughs> so I'm not saying that I'm always right. But if I do have a gut instinct on something, I will lead from the front on that and say, this is the right way, guys. You need to come with me. And I might have to explain why I've come up with this idea later, but it's the right one. I like the idea of, I'm, not, I'm sure it's not in the, in the rules of the organisation, but I like the idea of welcome to Yorkshire. It's like the Yorkshire Cricket Club used to be. You need to be Yorkshire born to, uh, to run out for them. I'm sure that's not what is required, but it probably should be. I think it's a really good question. And we've just uh, been recruiting for a head of strategic delivery, so head of strategy for want of another phrase. And actually, uh, when I applied for the role, you know, I thought, you know, is it important that you have to come from Yorkshire to work here? The first and foremost answer is no, you don't have to, in my opinion, but you've got to fully understand what it means to be from Yorkshire. You know, we do, uh, competition's the wrong word, but we would look at visit Scotland and visit Wales and visit Ireland, even visit New Zealand as our competitors, you know, because we've got 5 million people in Yorkshire with a coastline, three national parks, and as I mentioned earlier on, vibrant cities, history, culture, food, drinks. So in that respect, we're representing a lot of people, a diaspora across the world that understand what it means to be from Yorkshire. So, um, you know, you don't have to have been born here, which used to be the thing for Yorkshire cricket, but it really helps to understand the idiosyncrasies. It helps to understand the politics, the geography. And it's a credibility. It's a credibility point, I suppose, isn't it, at the at the juncture of the organisation? Yeah, it is. But But again, you'd expect me to say this, that we're a really modern county now, so we've got to represent all people, all uh, backgrounds, all ethnicities. But at the same time, you know, I think just understanding what it means to be from Yorkshire and that heart-bursting pride uh, when we refer to our home county, I think is important, James, yes. Claire, we, we've, we've alluded to this, but we should say you were born in Skipton. This is a fully Yorkshire production today. Um, not necessarily. I'm sure, I'm sure I haven't detected any belligerence yet, but if there was any, I know where I would trace it back to. Um, but just tell me a little bit on that. This is James's point on credibility, I think. I think I'm right in saying you've got two dogs and a cat, but there must be something to have kept you there for 10 years. There, there must be, what's the TV programme called? For the Love of Dogs. There must be very much that you bring into the office every day. It is very much about passion for the cause. I think you can't work in any charity, doesn't matter what it is really, unless you care about the cause, because you're not going to bring the best of yourself to the party if if you don't. And I think for me, I work with some of the most incredible and dedicated people I've ever worked with. I'm incredibly proud of all of them. They are fiercely independent. They really know what they want. They'll walk through miles of deep snow to get to work if the weather's bad and the, the public transport 
transport is is out of action. They'll make sure that they'll they'll break their backs to do everything they can for their animals. And I think it's that passion and it's that cause and it's seeing the difference that you can make. I mean, this is there are not many jobs I think that you can get up in the morning and and actually go to work knowing that you're you're saving lives and changing the world. And and actually, it's a very inspiring it's a very inspiring sector to work in. Working, understanding that you're you know it doesn't matter whether you're you're in conservation or it's animal welfare or you're dealing with poverty or homelessness or child you know children's issues young people all of those things without people working who care none of those social issues would ever change and so i think you have to have that that real love in my case for animals i see some of the most horrific or or sad sad stories coming through the door and sometimes we're not successful in in turning their lives around sometimes we can't save them but the majority of times we can and when you start to see trust being built in an animal that's had horrific torture or or abuse all through its life and never known a, a kind word you know that's what makes the job worth doing and that's actually what inspires people to be the best that they can be so i always talk to my people when when we we start and i say you know wherever you go and whoever you meet you never know who you're talking to so you're always a fundraiser you're always an ambassador for Battersea you're always selling the cause because somebody one day will talk to you and as a result of what you've said will decide that they either want to get their animal from you or they want to leave you a million pounds or 20 pounds or whatever it is that they want to give you but you will make an impression and ultimately that helps another animal. And where do you take that? I mean, you aren't at the front line, clearly. You will be at the front line sometimes, I've no doubt. I think about two-thirds of your staff are the frontline animal carers. But there must be times, as James alluded to, you're facing real challenge. You talked about injury and sadness and so on. Very different to Welcome to Yorkshire. But where do you take that? Do you take that home or do you have a mentor to talk to about that? I, I do take it home a bit. I have um I don't have a mentor. I have a I have a husband who is my absolute rock when it comes to understanding everything that I go through. And he, he knows the names of so many different people that I work with. He knows all their stories. He knows the stories of the challenges that I deal with. And, you know, he's lived and breathed everything that I've ever done really with me. And, and that's been a huge support for me. But, you know, we are very much at Battersea a real tight knit group. So there are 550 people work at Battersea in, in various roles. And as you say, there are a very large number of frontline people. But everybody in every team, uh, you know, very importantly, is part of, of part of making the whole organisation work. And so we are very supportive of each other. And it's been particularly relevant, I think, over the last few months with COVID, as we've seen a real increase in mental health issues, particularly in people feeling very vulnerable through through either isolation or, or just worry about their jobs. So you know, that team spirit is really, really important, I think. I want to ask you both about where you came from prior to these roles. So James, first of all, 12 years as a BBC journalist, and then, um, well, as a Huddersfield town fan, I'm reluctant to say that you went to Bradford City for several years. But <laughs> first of all, converting those journalism skills, how did you go about doing that? Yes, 12 years as a journalist and actually some really, really happy years as well, albeit I was freelance for a lot of those years, but I worked for the BBC both at a very local level, um, you know, local radio and then national level at Five Live and BBC television. And then I suppose my claim to fame, and I do mean this, was working for the World Service for a period of time because I grew up listening to the radio. We're a radio family. 
Um, and I fell in love with radio, listening to Bradford City Football Club when I was a young man. And the, the sort of theatre of the mind that was conjured up by the radio commentators at the time, you know, taking you to uh, different parts of the country and being your eyes at a game that you couldn't get to. So my, my background as a journalist ultimately came from a thirst for knowledge and uh, a thirst for storytelling. I've always been interested in people. I love asking questions about people's backgrounds and how they've got to where they've got to. And it's inspired me actually probably to end up here at Welcome to Yorkshire and prior to that at Bradford City. So I class myself as a journalist by trade, first and foremost. So a, a woodworker or a, an artist may say that, you know, that's their trade and whatever they go on to do, they may say, you know, I'm a trained X, Y, and Z. I am a journalist, so I like to tell stories. And, and I suppose at Welcome to Yorkshire, we're telling stories about our county. We're telling stories about why people should come here and what's going on. And then the Bradford City role, I suppose, came about after having worked as a journalist for a lot of years. But also because I was freelance, I had another business. Oh, sorry, I had another income, which was from a manufacturing role I took on, not as a manufacturer, but actually designing and selling staircases, which is completely unrelated to what I do now. But it was a needs must. I needed to work and I needed to earn money. And actually, I built a business that eventually became quite successful. So I was able to be a journalist during the week and in the evening and at the weekend, because I ultimately was a football reporter, but then had a, a business background. So I moved on to Bradford City in terms of approaching them and saying, I think you can tell your story better than you currently are, if that makes sense. Bradford City are a hardworking uh, football club in West Yorkshire. They happened to be my club and they were doing brilliantly as a brand and, and on the pitch. But as a fan, I was thinking, I think we can do more. I think we can do more. So uh, another Yorkshire freight, quite cheekily, I approached the club and said, I think I can help. And I think I can help for free. So I suppose to get in the door is to offer the decision maker something that's not going to cost them much. Well, free goes down very well in Yorkshire, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Yeah, there's nothing cheaper than free. And then the added value to that was that I was bringing some journalistic, some PR, some marketing and some business acumen. I think the, I think the chairman at the time thought I was going to bring some investment. And sadly, he was disappointed when I came with some empty pockets. But I suppose to answer your question, James, journalist by trade, and I've carried that skill through everything that I've done. You know, I, I wouldn't like to say I write all our press releases, but I understand, you know, what the listener or the viewer or the reader needs to get out of our transmission. And that's held me in good stead through all my positions at Bradford City, who were telling a story. At Welcome to Yorkshire, we're telling a story. So actually quite entrepreneurial, really. I mean, you didn't have sort of CEO, you know, flashing before your eyes and thinking, I, I must run something. It was it was very opportunistic. And as the, the chances came your way, Claire, you have a, uh, I mean, I didn't realize about the staircases, James, I, I thought Claire was going to beat you in the in the variety stakes, but I think it's pretty much level pegging now with the staircase business. Claire, you started out at NSPCC. You were, as an appeals manager role. You were in public affairs, so very used early on to some of the things that we've talked about: how to state the case, put the organisation's opinion forward, and to the right people. And then before you know it, a few years later, I'm sorry, I'm concertinoing this a bit, but you were CEO of the Students' Union at the University of Warwickshire. So just 
take me from one to the other. I'm curious about how, how that CV built itself. <laughs> well, um, yes, indeed. I, I did start life as a, as firstly as a fundraiser at NSPCC and then took on the additional role of, uh, of regional public affairs, which was, which was great grounding for all things charity and all things public relations and, uh, and legislative. So that was quite useful. No, I, uh, I ended up at the University of Warwick simply because I've worked in charities and various different causes, either as a volunteer or running them for many years. And I particularly love working with young people. So the opportunity to go to Warwick and uh, run the Students' Union, which funnily enough, they told me the day I arrived was that we're so glad you're here. By the way, we didn't mention this before, but we actually don't have any money. We have about £20,000 and then we're all going to go bust. And by the way, also being a Students' Union Chief Executive is being about as safe in your job as a football manager. So I thought, oh God, this is going to be amazing. I don't know what on earth I'm going to do here or where I've come to. But I have to say, we had the most incredible time. A wonderful, I mean, the University of Warwick students are just tremendous people. They're very clever. They're very smart. You know, they know that they want to do lots of things. They don't necessarily know quite what yet. So part of being, I suppose, in charge of everything that sits outside the curriculum. So all of the sort of services around bars, restaurants, nightclubs, 250 societies and clubs that they could get involved with running the world's largest cultural festival for students at that time. So, you know, very, very busy, busy organisation and running it with no money uh, and a load of really clever students who had a had a leadership role inside the organisation too was very new to me, but really enjoyable. And my goodness me, what a, I was there six years actually, and we did sort the money thing out. We we did a lot of, I mean, this is where I, I sort of, I do a bit of turnaround in, in my role very often. And um, so we spent a lot of time looking at the money we really had to cut our cloth we really had to make some changes to the structure of the organization and then we actually with the 20 grand that we did have we had to redecorate the entire four floor 3,000 capacity students union in time for freshers week which we did with a, a good coat of paint some new colored lighting and lo and behold they all loved it and from there on in the money started to come in you know it's slightly more complicated than that but you know essentially that's where we ended up so um no had six years there and worked directly with the university to actually improve the whole of the sort of commercial services for them in the end. I, I did a lot with the commercial areas of the university as well. So we brought the two sides together and uh, and very successfully too. Everyone was very, very, very pleased and very happy student body. Well, I see they've got you going back lecturing now, so they've never quite let you go, have they? <laughs> no, they don't. I um, I lecture on strategic leadership and change management for the executive MBA programme for the business school at the University of Warwick. I do hope your wallpapering is a uh, is a uh, case study. <laughs> well, okay, but now I have to say I did. Uh, I was very lucky to do an MBA while I was at Warwick because I didn't actually go to university the first time around. So I'm going to give James a run for his money now and tell you I actually started life as a police officer. So when I left school, I started. I did eight years in the West Midlands Police and then got married, had my son, and uh, and then went on to NSPCC. So I uh, I have done quite a few weird and wonderful things. But I, so I didn't go to university, actually. I, uh, I missed that bit and enjoyed doing an MBA at Warwick. So that's why they won't let me leave now. That's amazing. James, anything else Anything else you can add? Oh, I don't want this to go back and forward, Claire, but I, I was an official pie taster when I was a young man. So can you beat that? Well, 
Not quite a leadership role, James. That's the sort of job you pick up at university, isn't it? It's either pie taster or, you know, sperm donor or barman or something. Holland's Pies in Baxendale in, in East Lancashire were looking for a pie taster. And of course, later on that evening, you know, when I had a, maybe one or two pints of Yorkshire bitter and was ordering a pie from behind the bar, I thought, I knew there was something I'd not applied for. And do you know what? Uh, there was no financial remuneration. You were paid in pies for about a year. Our house, because I was living at home at the time, was just full of pies that my friends and former students loved the fact that they could take home 24 pies each every time they came around. Just to wrap up now, what, what do you both uh, offer to the next generation of leader, the people that you might mentor or people who ask your advice? Uh, right. Well, I, I spend a lot of time talking to new and, and, and growing managers, really, about uh, about the people. For me, it's always an organisation is nothing if it's not for its people. So it's very much understanding who your people are, understand what makes them tick, um, understand how you can motivate and drive and inspire them. But most of all, understand your business, really start getting to grips, get on the ground floor, understand what the people at the front line are doing. And the more you know your business the more you can talk about it to others and the more your staff and your teams and your organization will will support you and respect you james i'm interested in your view i mean you you can't really have the time for helping the next generation can you or is there always something you want to do just to keep pushing people along yeah I i think the famous phrase of leading by example is the best way that you can demonstrate to your colleagues and your staff leadership and it, actually, I saw it just this week in one of our junior members of staff who on a WhatsApp group that I said, please do not bombard everyone with tittle tattle, put out there that she was setting up a food bank box on reception for obviously people to contribute to the current story with regards to you know free school meals. And for me, that demonstrated something that my team's working. You know, she had the courage of her convictions to put it above the parapet in an open forum because we've got 25 staff so everyone reads it and thought it was it was relevant and I thought I thought that was that was great because that that would be my message back to other people to you know value yourself really understand the business like Claire mentioned there but by doing that understand your staff and what makes them tick we're always facing challenging situations daily as to how to get a difficult message across to a member of staff that might be underperforming or how to rein back in someone that's overperforming and you know walking around like a peacock with their feathers out what I didn't mention was that one of my roles I suppose as a journalist was to get inside the people who you were interviewing Try and understand why they were doing anything. And that's the only thing I would say to any staff member. Before you're about to make a decision, before you're about to send an email, imagine you're receiving it. So what would make you tick? So going back to the Bradford City thing, I knew the club had no money and I knew they needed some help. So it's that. So the idea of passing on what you know and, and really getting people to understand people. So sorry to copy Claire's answer, but it starts and ends with people. Having a good culture, a good team around you can probably solve most problems much quicker than finance or clever strategies. Well, I hope between the pair of you, we've got a little understanding about what makes both of you tick. So James and Claire, thanks so much for the conversation. Thanks very much. You're very welcome. Our pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review as if you like what you've heard. You can find more leaders sharing their stories in previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts or please take a look at leadingpod.com. In the charity world, previous guests include Matt Hyde from The Scouts and Linda Thomas from Millen Cancer Support talking about their particular challenges. 
My book, The Nine Types of Leader, is published by Kogan Page. It draws on the wisdom of CEOs I've interviewed over several years, including some that are featured on the podcast. The book is out in January 2021 and available to pre-order now. Thank you.